Welcome to the Get the Knack Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Knack, coming to you from the Get the Knack Podcast studio here in Ocean Shores, Washington. And I'm speaking to a fellow Washingtonian tonight. And you know, I've interviewed four-star generals and admirals and pro football hall of famers throughout my 30-year career in journalism. I have never interviewed a Grammy winner. Please welcome to the program, Grammy award-winning recording artist and national anthem singer extraordinaire and a lot of other things, Michael Wansley, also known as T. Wands. Wands, welcome to the show. Good morning, Vietnam. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, Michael, we were talking uh, before the show started uh, about uh, living here in Washington State, and uh, you grew up in Washington. And uh, what are uh, what are some great things about being here? Well, my dad, my dad got stationed at Fort Lewis when it was just Fort Lewis and McCord. Uh, in '68, we moved down here from Anchorage. And I was all of six and a half, seven years old and have pretty much grown up south of Tacoma in a little community called Lakewood. And, you know, the coolest thing that I found over the last 40 some odd years with all the kids that I grew up with, we look at each other now and look at what people and the country is like now and just scratch our heads and look like, how did this happen? <laughs> I've been wondering the same thing myself. I grew it up. Was so, it was so easy. I mean, it was so easy. Nobody thought about anything back then. It seemed like. Right. And, and there was no social media to record the dumb stuff we used to do. Uh, Thank goodness. Right. So I grew up in Western New York and, and joined the Navy at 18 and, and, and moved around a lot. And, you know, I used to come to Washington uh, regularly uh, when I worked uh, for the Oakland Raiders football team. And, you know, I grew to love Seattle, love the Pacific Northwest. And uh, so when the opportunity arose last summer, uh, you know, we, we started looking up the coast from Crescent City all the way up. And I, I think mm. I, I looked as far north as, as Oak Harbor. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, when we found Ocean Shores, we're like, this is a spot. We wanted to be on the coast. We wanted to be somewhere where it actually rains. And, and we got that, <laughs> you know, in, in buckets. Uh, but I had a white Christmas for the first time in over 20 years. So, you know, moving here has just been been great. And I love the air quality after being in the Bay Area for so long and with wildfires yep. and all that. It's just it's just a great place to be, isn't it? Yeah, uh, the the coolest thing that I I figured out when I when I left college in the mid '80s is like you know you can drive three hours in any direction and you're it seems like you're in a whole different place. I'll buy that. I definitely buy that because you have beach and coastal community. You have you mm -hmm. have forests and mountains and trails, and then you have some of the most uh, cosmopolitan cities you could you could ever ask for. I love the vibe yeah. in Olympia. I've always yeah. always loved Seattle, right? Yeah, and then if you drive like two and a half three hours east, you're in the middle of nowhere, like real nowhere. Yeah, like and Trump plains country, of, plains of grain, nowhere. <laughs> right, and if you end up in Pullman, you end up in Trump country. Oh no, no, you don't have to go that far. No, <laughs> that's true. That's that's true. Unfortunately, I see the signs on on pickup trucks on the on the on the highway. Um, yep. You know, Michael. Obviously, um, you know, I know you because. Um, we met through my former publisher and we've been Facebook friends ever since. So, yep. you know, we kind of have uh, gotten to know each other, uh, kind of the new age way, the new, uh, technological way. This yep. is the first time we've actually, uh, spoken to each other, but you have a famous voice. You're uh, a successful recording artist, a Grammy award winner. How did you even get started in music in the first place? 
it's the very first thing I remember. The very first thing I remember was a schoolyard in Anchorage, Alaska on Fort Richardson. My dad was uh, stationed up there and we lived across the street from Ursa Minor Elementary School. And leaving school one day, kids were kind of needling me about one kid's like, yes, he knows how to sing. No, he doesn't. No, I, well, does he know how to sing this? And they name a song and I'd sing a little bit of it and, and put my coat on and going down the hall and three kids turned into five kids and songs kept coming and I kept singing. And then we went outside and it was in October. And I remember big, those big fluffy flakes coming down and I'm standing now, now I'm surrounded by like 10 kids and well, what about this song? And I started singing a little bit of it. And, you know, after, after a couple minutes, I'm, I'm, I hear my name and I, I turn around and running across the street is like the black June Cleaver. She's got the big, the big hoopy dress and the, the checker, the red and white checker apron and the fluffy. It's my mom. <laughs> because I lived, you know, we lived across the street. She could see that I was out there. She thought something was, she thought I was in a fight or something. <laughs> so she comes running up and I stop and she turns and she looks down and she goes, Michael, Michael, are you all right? And I just look up at her and say, yeah, mom, I'm just singing. That's the, that's the very first thing I remember. Oh, wow. And, you know, from, I, I remember uh, there, there's a picture of me that I haven't found yet, but I remember it um, of me singing for, she had me sing for the Kiwanis thing up there. And my brother, who was 10 years older, and my sister who was nine years older, my brother was going to the high school up there. He had his own quasi American bandstand show. And my sister was the go-go dancer. Oh, wow. We were like, so event of our time. It was crazy. And my yeah. brother went on to, he went on to be a broadcaster here in Seattle. And, uh, my sister and I still, we still joke about, you know, the times, you know, living up there and, 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 you know, driving the, the Skagway highway, highway one through British Columbia getting here. And uh, I remember waking up and we're, we're somewhere, near Whitehorse or something like that. And I'm looking out the window. It's a logging road, like real logging roads with like real logging trucks with real big ass trees on them. <laughs> I look out the window and I look out the window and there's like a foot and a half of dirt. And then it's just a big, huge drop off and, you know, way far away. I mean, like a mile away are trees. Mm -hmm. I just turned my head and went back to sleep. <laughs> And I freak out when we go to like Yosemite and we're driving those roads and I'm looking out the window going, yeah, no, that's not happening. Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously you discover at a young age that you you have a voice, right? But you have to yeah. develop it. You have to, to you know, get into uh, all kinds of different things as, as you're growing up, right? And, and Well, sort of. I mean, if I could hear it, I could sing it. I grew up listening to the AM radio. Oh, you and too, huh? The, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the cool thing about it is back in the day, they play everything. That's I true. Remember, you know, in, in 1969, um, you know, I was listening to 8.50 a.m. KTAC in Tacoma. Four o'clock, Sugar Brucey Cannon. I'll never forget this guy. He was amazing. But, I mean, he'd play John Denver and then play The Temptations. Then he'd play The Rolling Stones. And then he'd play, you know, some kind of weird quasi Engelbert Humperdinck song, then there'd be a commercial. 
And he'd come back and he'd play Grand Funk Railroad and then he'd play the Carpenters. It was everything, everything. That sounds like my radio show with Armed Forces Radio. Right. We played everything. Yeah, that's that's something you and my brother have in common. He did AFR for six years. He was stationed on the USS America. Ah, I did it in Keflavik, Iceland. Nice. Oh yeah. So when you talk about Alaska, you know, I know some folks that were, were stationed in Alaska and, and did the, the whole AFN tour there and everything else. But you know, what I mean is, you know, at what point did you start taking this singing ability and turning it into something? Well, I had two really good teachers in my, in my so-called career because mom of course stuck me in the church. So, you know, it was a mystery. It was a mystery that never got solved for her. Why God gave you this gift and I could sing in church, but then, you know, all I wanted to do was just sing radio songs, (laughs) which just, you know, that was just like one of the bitter points of contention that never, ever got resolved. But, uh, long about junior high, my first real choir teacher uh, whose name is Ben Keller. We still keep in touch. He's living down in Tacoma, and we still keep in touch. Uh, he's the one who actually got me inspired that I actually had any talent at it and and sh- didn't show me how to read music. He just explained what music already meant because in my head I already knew what things were. So it was just like, oh, the dot means this. Oh, the hashtag means this. Oh, and this means... Uh, and so that was seventh through ninth grade. He was my choir teacher, or seventh through seventh and eighth grade, and then in ninth grade, got a female teacher, and she was the worst. (laughs) Oh, that's okay. I only had to tolerate it for a year. Then I got to high school and had uh, another fabulous male teacher, Barney Krause, and he's the one who got me, you know, if I could hear it, I could sing it. Well, then I figured out if I could sing it, then I could figure out the notes on the piano. So I taught myself how to play piano, thanks to him. And that was great because I'm in high school. What do I want to do? I want to learn. I want to learn like Elton John songs and have girls go, "Oh, that's so wonderful." <laughs> <laughs> right? But there were like I mean- three guys. There were three guys who were way better than me, so that didn't happen. But I did teach myself how to play piano. But Wands, and- we grew up in that era where where musicians and singers were, you know canonized and 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 lusted after by you know oh yeah you know teenage girls like there was no tomorrow oh yeah i mean you know people freak out they look at you know old uh, reruns of the partridge family and go ew how and they don't understand it's like no tiger beat was full of that and the monkeys and and the beatles and oh my god sean it, it cassidy was, and oh my god i mean my sister was all over that stuff i had to live with that stuff it was disgusting <laughs> it was disgusting but that's what—that's the era we grew up in. I mean, you yep. look at go back to to early Journey, right? And we're all looking at Steve Perry, going like, "How's he pulling anybody? Because he could sing." That's right. That's right. right. And I, all just, the- I just heard a I just heard a YouTube thing last week because I was, you know, I'm in a I've, I've been like my hobby now is is doing production. I'm recording myself. I have my own little studio and stuff. And I stumbled across this uh, this guy on YouTube who has a series and. One of his things is what makes songs great. And he was doing uh, Don't Stop Believing." So he had the the actual tracks. And to listen to Steve Perry without anything around him will blow your mind. It will change your it'll change your center of gravity of what you thought about that song. It is so clean. 
And you know, so clear. I remember oh, a story about like whoever the record label was had some of their artists come and like sing a cappella, and one of the groups was New Kids on the Block, and these guys couldn't sing to save their lives. Mm-mm. Like, nope. they couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. It was all, you know, produced, uh, auto tune, all that stuff. And then, no, I have no doubt Steve Perry can sing. It, yeah. You know, yeah. you know, I still play, I still play the Escape album when I really want to rock out. Oh, yeah. I put that on and play it front to back and just scream my lungs out because it, you know, there was just no other music like that in the early 80s. Uh, I mean, all the stuff that happened in the 80s, that's when I like hit my stride and figured out how to play bass. And I, I mean, I got into my very first band playing bass because I told a bass player in a band that he was playing just what I needed by the cars wrong. <laughs> and I'd never played in a band before. And of course, he's, you know, he's going to be the wise guy. He says, oh, yeah, you think you know so much? You come over here and play it. Well, it took me about two or three minutes to figure out what the notes were and then i rehearsed it with the drummer one two two three counted off we played the, the, the played the, and then all of a sudden i went into the verse and then i went and back did the did the chorus again stopped handed him his bass back and went back upstairs in my <laughs> from the basement three days later you're, you're <laughs> the, the bass player, player. He goes well you know you pick up songs really fast you want to you you we're gonna fire this guy if you want to join the band <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Well, here's mm-hmm. the th- here's the thing, Michael. So all of that, right, leads mm-hmm. to somehow, some way, and I, I want you to tell the story. It, you end up uh, teaming up with uh, Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. So how okay. did, how did you meet Macklemore? So uh, you know the story because I'm old uh, is long. But I will. I have gotten it to a paraphrased version, which I will begin now because it pretty much begins when I left college and moved over here in '86, and I kind of immersed myself into the music community here, playing in bands. I I played in a band at one of the biggest. I went to school in Ellensburg, which is like the first major town you hit when you go east on I-90 across the mountains. And I I got my bat. That's another story of getting my my music degree there, but. I studied music and I like was immersed in it, right? So when I moved over here, it was like, okay, what's my first job? Well, the first job I got was working at Tower Records U District. So I would see musicians from bands and they would tell me what they were doing. And then after work, which was midnight, because Tower was always open till midnight every day of the year, and I would run downtown and I'd catch these guys and then we, you know, then we would hang out. Well, get to the late '80s, early '90s, and the guys that I'm hanging out with. Well, those are like members of Soundgarden and Mookie Blaylock, which became Pearl Jam mm-hmm. and Candlebox and Alice and Shane. All those guys were my drinking buddies. So when they got when they got their shot, I was like in the thick of it. So I kept grinding and grinding with my own music, trying to do stuff. And sure enough, the '90s turned into the 2000s, and stuff kind of really wasn't happening. And I finally, in the late 2000s, came came to this conclusion that nobody on MTV, nobody on the radio, nobody who had a major hit song looked like me or sounded like me. And it just, it, it put me in a hole that I don't, I didn't know how I was going to get out of. Thank God, this was like in 2009 and Facebook started. And I was lamenting this on my Facebook post and a drummer friend of mine hits me back and he says, well, don't you remember? We do it because we love it, not because we're going to be famous. And that 
like kindled it totally shifted my center of gravity and i started writing on my own got back into playing a little guitar collected recording gear and started recording my own songs um in about 2002 i shacked uh, i i i had I got my first real studio experience working for a, a troupe of rappers. They were like the Wu-Tang Clan of the north end of Seattle. It was kind of hilarious now, but none of those guys could sing. One of them found out I could sing, and all of a sudden I'm doing sessions for like six guys. And that went until like 2005, 2006 when the whole hip-hop game kind of changed and nobody, nobody wanted a singer who sounded like Nate Dogg, who's a you know, uh, G-Funk legend hook singing legend nobody wanted him so i went back to doing my own thing and and i had gotten you know graduated from working at a record store to driving a delivery truck for hair care products to getting a job at microsoft and now i was working somewhere else uh the the producer that had recorded these guys calls me up one night what are you doing he says oh i'm i'm surfing facebook and watching nightline you down for a session I'm always down for a session. Well, it's quarter to midnight. I didn't care. So an hour later, I'm walking into this nondescript little it was two, two containers that were made into a residence, and I'm shaking hands with a guy named Ben Haggerty and Ryan Lewis. I'd never heard of them. They had never heard of me. And, you know, we just kind of got acquainted, and Ryan starts playing this song, and Ben has already explained to me what the song's about, and I hear this, and Ben is like, said the words to me a couple of times, and the first thing that popped out of my mouth was, I'm gonna pop some tags, only got $20 in my pocket, and their eyes lit up, and they, yeah, like that, and so we worked it out, they put me in the booth, I recorded the chorus, came out they explained the the middle part of it i wear your granddad's clothes i look incredible we did that part part flipped me in pretty much 45 minutes after i was in the booth they cut me a check and i was leaving and nobody thought anything of it not a thing you know what's funny is i just was bopping my head and i got i get goosebumps listening to you do that it's so weird and it gets weirder so couple months go by i've forgotten about these guys because you got to remember i mean i'm i'm singing hooks for rappers and a lot of the street rappers you know the street guys right they were into they were either running women drugs stealing uh it was all nefarious everybody dealt in cash so the fact that i got paid by a check was like miracle <laughs> it was like all special i never took a picture i should have taken a picture of it but i didn't so two months later I'm walking into my job at 4th and Madison at the 22nd floor, and my phone rings, and it's Ryan. We're shooting a video for Thrift. Do you want to be in it? Oh, okay. So they send their manager down, and he picks me up, and he takes me to the now-defunct legendary store, Leroy's Men's Wear, which is where they would sell, quote-unquote, pimp clothes. And that's where the infamous suit in that video came. And they you know, took me up to the shooting spot, and... I had never seen anything like this before. I didn't know a soul. I didn't know anybody. And so I'm standing around and it's like, yeah, go get dressed. We're going to do your shot next. And I come down and I'm standing, you know, kind of in the middle of the floor. And the director is like, okay, so we're going to now, we're going to shoot you singing the hook. Okay, who's going to be in the shot with me? No, we're just going to shoot you. And I'm like, oh, okay. Take one. I forget the words. Take two. I get three of the words and then I forget the rest. 
Take three. I get about three quarters of the way through, and I forget. And Ben sticks his head out from behind the the camera, and he goes, you don't remember the words, do you? Which now seems like asininely silly and crazy and unheard of, right? And I said no. So we did rehearsals, and it's like they just filmed me, and pretty much we did four takes, and two of two of the takes that you that you know they put that's what's in the, the song. And I still didn't think anything of it until August 29th, two thousand and twelve. I'm sitting at work, waiting for this video to drop. And I have a presentation to do at my job, and I'm in the middle of doing my presentation. My my BlackBerry says, "Ding, ding." I go, <laughs> "I'm getting a notification everything every time something happens on <laughs> on YouTube." And I look at it, and what had started out to be like 800 was now 1700. Then it was 4,000. Then it was 8,000. And this is all like before lunch and then you know by the end of the day it had gotten up to like fifteen thousand, and i was freaking out i just looked out and, and i i know i'll just go to i'll go to their website because i really don't know much about these guys so i go to their website and i look at these videos and and i stopped on one that was called um uh victory lap and it was footage from them touring in a van in 2011 but what stopped me was the one part where they have Macklemore standing on the front of the stage at the at the old Coliseum in front of all these lights, all these little lights from the crowd, all these phone cell phone lights. Sold out crowd. I remember I was at that bumper shoot thing. I didn't go to the show. But it was a sold out show. Then I went to back through his website and I looked at all the tour dates. And from October to May. They were all sold out in Europe and the U.S. I looked out the window. I went, oh, oh, this is so not good. Because this is, I'm on this song. So I'm trying to keep my, my wits about me. And, you know, people are start pinging me and, and ringing me up because they're hearing the song. They're seeing it on YouTube. And, you know, I have a lot of friends. I've been around a long time. I asked them in October, you know, can I go do... You know, some dates with you. I'd never been on the road before. Sure. So we got four shows in and and Ben says, we really like you and, and you do really well on stage. We want you to join the tour. Two nights after that, we were doing a sold out show at the Fillmore in San Francisco. <laughs> Yeah, you giggle. Uh, yeah, one, one of my favorite see. spots. Right. Well, what I remember is when I was nine years old, uh, listening on Saturday nights at KTAC on se- at 7 o'clock, live from the Fillmore, and they broadcast concerts from there. So I remember, I mean, I grew up listening to Cream and, and not Hendrix, but uh, Mamas and the Papas and the Calcils, everybody who played there. And now I'm going to do a sold-out show there? It was so overwhelming, I broke down in tears at Soundcheck because at that moment, it all became real. Yeah, because all those cats that were playing the Troubadour in L.A. are now playing the Fillmore in San Francisco. Right. Right. They all grew up and graduated to that. That's right. 
and you know i'm just on a i'm on a i'm on like shore leave and i'm just like hanging out and you know the show comes off the next day i'm looking for a credit union to 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 deposit my first tour check lost somewhere by the presidio and my phone rings and it's my boss and he says you know you were supposed to be back and i said i tried to get a hold of you before the before the weekend but nobody got back to me okay well we understand blah, blah. when are you going to be back and i said you know what an opportunity like this for a guy my age is probably never going to happen again so i got to stay out here and i walked away from 85 grand and benefits and stock options and the whole nine i had less than 500 dollars in, in the bank but i will tell you this after that day i toured the world twice on one song and in two and a half years every single dream that i ever had came true and i've got the statues to prove it and this coming from a, a military brat who starts singing in an elementary school schoolyard in Alaska. Yep. Yep. I I said it. I, I say it. I, used, I said it all over the world. If you do something that makes you happy, and especially if it makes someone else happy, never, ever stop doing it because you just never know where it could take you. And, you know, the thing about that track Right. That that became like symbolic of the early 2010s. Right. I mean, Macklemore hit big, but that particular track and, and your hook, the, the opening to that became and I and I do not throw this word around lightly because, you know, me being a wordsmith, uh, I don't throw the word iconic around very often. But that song has become emblematic of the early 2010s and and that hook has become iconic your voice the lyric it, and you know i don't know if if he's going to become a thing or continue to be a thing but the plain fact of the matter is it doesn't matter if you are on one song or 20 songs you are on one of these these tracks that everybody knows yeah, my my friends and I we used to we used to joke about it. We don't anymore. I mean, when it was like three, four years after the song was, you know, popular. I mean, up to like five and six years after the song was popular, we would joke and say, "Dude, you were on the you were on the Louis Louis of the two thousand you know the two thousand and tens, fifteens. You're on the Louis Louis song because you know, it's all over the world." And I go, "Yeah, I know. Well, this is it's now." 2022 10 years so now everything that i went through starting in may when i first did that recording session it'll be 10 years and you know now the only people who don't know that song were the people who weren't you know they were less than five years old when it came out right right and and the funny thing is i was just talking to my wife about this the other day my and my son my my 15 year old and you know we often talk about you know pro sports right we you we're all hypercritical, right? Somebody has a bad performance or, or, or you look at somebody who's like, ah, how'd that guy get in the league? Uh, it doesn't matter what sport. And you're like, you know what? He got farther than you did. Yep. Right. So when I look at, you know, we were talking about one hit wonders, right. And, you know, as, as a child of the seventies and eighties and, and you think about all the one hit wonders, you know what? They at least had that one hit. They, yep. you know, they had that. And some people, even even like the Lou Reeds of the world, right? I mean, he never had to follow up Walk on the Wild Side. He did, nope. but he didn't have to. 
right? So the fact that you're on this track now, I know that's not who you are as a person, right? This one thing does not define you. It's one thing I've learned about Michael Wansley over the the time that I've known you. It doesn't Mm -hmm. define you. It's not who you are, but it's pretty freaking cool that you're on this track and you have a Grammy award to go with it. So here's the thing. And, you know, it's taken a long time for me to get right with it because it's not like I just came home one day and said, okay, this is it, and and, and didn't stop doing what I had been doing before. I, I fought and scratched and and begged, almost borrowed and stealed to not come back to where I was. I tried to extend it. I tried to write music and recorded this and, you know, followed up on these things. The music business is difficult as is every other business out there and so you know i was going to check myself into a loony bin well you know you know wands when you think about it too i mean you look at what i do right i i write books you know i mean i i have a day job but and and i get to write in that day job but you know writing novels very, very similar, right? I mean, I've not had my one hit wonder. I've not had that moment where, you know, I haven't had that, you know, yeah. bestseller, well, right? So, but that means you haven't gone through what I've had to go through. And this true. is the, this is the curse. Everybody talks about the come up. Everybody talks up how was making the climb and, and everything that you went through and sacrificed and practiced and did all this, all the rejection and all this blah, 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 until you made it. And then you made it. But see, nobody ever talks about, well, what happens after you make it? Good point. You you had a high a lot of people don't experience. Right. And getting there is much easier than staying there, mm. which is something, you know, if you look at, if you look at uh, sports, for instance, you know, I don't like Tom Brady, but I got to respect him. Sure. I feel the same way about sports. him. Yeah, I mean, I don't like him, and I'd you know, I'd rather I'd rather rearrange my sock drawer than watch him play. But Fair. but I gotta I gotta respect him because you know he's he he's done it on two different teams in a decade at the highest level possible, right? And so yeah, uh, you know that that kind of you know it took a lot to turn my boat around because i thought for sure i was going to just drive off the falls was my life was over i've spent all these years trying to trying to follow up surf shop everybody tells me that it's so good i love that hook i love your voice i love this well if you love my voice why didn't you love the last four songs that i put out you put out songs yeah i put out songs (laughs) you're my facebook friend how could you not know i put out songs Uh, well yeah i listened to it once yeah you know it's like all these excuses come but it drives you know when you're when you're in your own pad, and you wake up and you walk past that statue, you wonder what the hell it means. Yeah, I get that. And, and it took me, you know, up until, I mean, some days I still get a little sideways about it. But I mean, four years ago I was nuts, went to therapy the whole nine, had to like mm. I had to redo everything. So I started over. I started, you know, reteaching myself how to record reteaching myself how to write uh songs how to write lyrics you know i still dabble in guitar i still dabble in bass i dabble in drums i know how to play all these things i know how they're put together but i'm trying to figure out what is it that i like 
because I've had, you know, the last 10 years, my whole existence as a musician has been defined by that hook. Yeah. And, and I can see how that would affect you, right? Especially, and you made a really, really good point a second ago about you walking by that statue, right? And, and trying to figure out what that means, mm-hmm. right? When you mm-hmm. have that that modicum of success, I mean award winning success. It's not like mm-hmm. you know you you know you sold a, a bunch of albums or or did this or I mean you have an award, and not you know, I mean, say whatever you want about you know Grammys or Oscars or Emmys or whatever. You still have the thing. It, it means a mm-hmm. lot, right? And I mean, mm-hmm. I led the show with I'm talking to my first ever Grammy award winner. Uh, I know mm-hmm. somebody in the Academy. Right, mm-hmm. somebody, the son of a, a close friend, is in the academy, so I know that this is this is a meaningful thing. And I have a, a yeah. very close friend of mine who comes on the show once a month, who writes for PopMatters.com, who's forgotten more about music than I'll ever know. Former uh, AFRTS uh, disc jockey like myself, and mm-hmm. you know, we talk about this all the time. We talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which I'm going to ask you about in a minute. Um, <laughs> you know, you're. You, you have something not a lot of people have. You're in a very exclusive club. Yeah. It, right? it, but, you know, but for everyone, it means something different. Sure. I'll I say that. it all the time. I say this all the time. I have two awards that 98% of the musicians on the planet don't have. And don't even get nominated for. That That's just it, too, right? I mean, I mean, I mean so, yeah. you know. I, first of all, I'm proud to know you as a, you know, right. I mean, I, not that we've met in person, but to know you the way we do. Um, the one time we were supposed to meet, it didn't happen. We were going to, and that's what the next topic is, is Nash, <laughs> national anthem, right? I was supposed to come to Seattle 2018. Mm-hmm. You were going to sing the national anthem before the Seahawks Raiders preseason game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, uh, um, that season, uh, it was determined that, uh, that I wasn't going to travel with the team. I was a historian at the time. And uh, so, unfortunately, you and I did not get to meet in person. We were going to talk before the game and this whole thing. So, you know, I get the and understand the struggles of, uh, you know, you have this hit and you're, you're trying to, to make a career beyond that, right? Mm-hmm. I understand that. But one of the things you've done, you have tried to make your way in the industry. You have tried to write and record music. You have recorded music. It's not like mm-hmm. you haven't done it. Um, yeah. But the other thing that you've done is you become this this national anthem singer extraordinaire, especially here in the Pacific Northwest. You've done, I mean, we have a new hockey team in Seattle, the Seattle Kraken. You've yep. uh, you've you've done that. You've done Seahawks. I'm sure you've done Mariners. Um, yep. Right. So how did that happen? So that was kind of an accident. That was one of those I dare you moments, because. The way that it went was they had a thrift shop night. Oh, Jesus. Really? At, the Mar- at one of the Mariners games. So, of course, you know, they call me up and ask me if I want to be a part of it. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so, you know, the thrift shop night happens and, you know, I get to throw out the first pitch and that whole thing, right? Well, that's cool. Well, I get... Well, I know, right? It's one of those. It's just one of those things that you just, you know, I'm walking across that grass on mm-hmm. that mound. Safeco that, Field. I've seen it, a game in Safeco Field. That's a beautiful yeah. ballpark. Yeah, I remember when they were building that thing. I mm-hmm. remember all of every, you know, to be part of part of that. But you know, to be out there and look around, and it's like you know, throw the ball, and thank God I didn't bounce it, and it's like, <laughs> you know, all of this 
all of this came from recording a song one night. And nobody thought anything of it, right? But see, your whole th- your whole career is serendipity, Michael. But wait, 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 wait. Just wait, just wait, because this gets really fun after after you know in a minute. So it was being thanked by that. I got a letter from the assistant head of promotions, and he thanked me. Uh, you know, it was a great night, and thanked me, and so on. I said, "Is there if there's anything I can do for you, let me know." And I said, well, you're very gracious. You're very kind. It was very, it was a great experience. So how does one sing the national anthem there? <laughs> <laughs> so they had all the anthem singers that season all lined up. Mm. So I kept that card in my pocket. And sure enough, right about this time, right about, you know, not very, right between New Year's and Valentine's Day is when I was told to contact them. So I sent them an email and you know, we kind of hashed it out and I did it once. They loved it. Uh, they got another hole in the schedule later that season. And I did it twice that year. The year after that, I sang three times the year after that. I was like on call. I only sang, I sang once and then I, you know, I could be there in an hour. So I was Mr. On call guy. And that led to the Seahawks thing. And because of the Seahawks thing, the promotions person for this, uh, I knew people who were like big Sounders fans. Mm, yeah. They have their own. They have their own guy, and have for a long time. Really? Brilliant singer. Really, but yes, brilliant. He's a great tenor. I tried to get him hooked up with uh, Seattle Opera because I've got like opera ties, which is another story in and of itself. Uh, but I did a duet with him. So it, 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 you know, all these promotions people are interconnected well then you know we're going to get a hockey team great that's awesome well it turns out that i did a forum in toronto four years ago and the guy one of the guys that was at the forum works for the company that is contracted to build the arena (laughs) so that got me a a gig doing doing uh, the Kraken, and the first time I did it, it, I mean, they were all like, "Whoa, right!" <laughs> and I just did it again three weeks ago, and they were all, I and I that. did it, and I did it differently, and they were all like, "Whoa!" <laughs> I was like, yeah, <laughs> "I'm right up the street. Call me anytime." Right. It's too bad our team is not doing so well, but you know, I was a free agent hockey fan, so I'm like, "I'm going to be a Kraken fan." Yeah, it's yeah. Great. Well, yeah. you know, it's new and it's good. I'll Better tell you one it. thing though: nothing, nothing was nothing was more exciting than walking in the bottom of that arena going someplace and walking back walking past two double doors that were really really tall and it and on the plaque next to it it said NBA visiting team the plaque's already there yeah we 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 can get into the, this supersonics and all that but uh yeah it uh, me being an old school nba fan uh mm-hmm. it, it hurts it hurts me that there's not a team in seattle it's you know it's all in the works this is all part of the plan i mean when yeah. i told you about that when i told you about the the fillmore concert you know i'm lugging stuff off the sta- up these stairs to the pack it into the auditorium and you know i walked past this guy he looks really familiar I couldn't remember who it was. And then I was told, oh, yeah, that's Chris What's-His-Face. He's trying to buy the Sonics. <laughs> and we couldn't tell anybody. 
the fact that they're in Oklahoma City and that whole thing, you know, that Kevin yeah. Hart, that that uh, you know Kevin Durant was the first, the last big name draft pick of of the SuperSonics. You know, when mm-hmm. I was a kid, it was you know Dennis Johnson was on the SuperSonics. Mm-hmm. I'm a Celtics fan, and and DJ is you know near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and the teams that the SuperSonics had in the '70s, it it does. It hurts me that there there's no no team in, in Seattle, and mm-hmm. you know the the Kraken having a hockey team is fantastic. The new arena, everything, it it looks looks great. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about here on the Get the Knack podcast uh, with Jerry Knack and special guest uh, Grammy Award winner Michael Wansley, otherwise known as T Wands. That, uh, you know, the new nominees for the class of 2022 for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame just came out. And yep. my friend Chris, as I mentioned, writes for Pop Matters. And we, we had this debate over how you define the term rock and roll. And, you know, me me growing up in the 70s and 80s, and I grew up on like the dawn of hip hop, right? Sugar Hill Gang and, and a lot of uh, early hip hop. And then leading into, you know, obviously Jeff Def Jam Records, and I'm a huge, mm-hmm. huge Beastie Boys fan, but also LL Cool J, and mm-hmm. that all led me to, you know, stuff like Public Enemy, and now you look at, at what's going to happen with the Super Bowl on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Right. A lot of people we see on Facebook, they want to debate the definition of the term rock and roll. <laughs> and it really bothers me because because I think I think rock and roll is not a music genre. It's an idea. It's a concept. It's a it's a up yours. It's a screw the man. It's it, it's you know counterculture. If, it's like if you know, only if only more people were as evolved and laterally uh, pliable as you. <laughs> because, I'll take that as a compliment. It was intended to be. Well, it is because I mean the thing of it is is that when I was in college and studying music, I had a a director there who was amazing. I mean, when I went to school, when I first got to school, I thought jazz was Chuck Mangione and George Benson. Hey, I saw Chuck Chuck Mangione in my elementary school and got feel so good autographed because he's from Rochester, New York, my hometown. Well, I had never I had never heard of Lee Morgan. Or, um, Jaquette or Dinah Washington mm, or, yeah. you know, I, 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 I had kind of heard of Dizzy Gillespie mm-hmm. and, you know, my senior, you know, the fall of 1983, he came to my school and I got to actually meet him and I actually got Ooh. to play a show with him. I actually got to play his signature song, Night in Tunisia on percussion with him oh i'm so i am i am an extended i'm a member of the extended beat generation so bop is near and dear to my heart so the whole i told i tell you all those things to tell you what my what we call them coach but coach told us jazz is freedom mm-hmm. that's all the great american art form is nothing about it's nothing but freedom and you know hate it all you want but the truth is, is that rock and roll is an extension of jazz. I'll buy that. And, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the funny thing is people want to define rock and roll as drums, guitar, and bass, right? And, and you know, a lead singer. But mm-hmm. 
you know, it just, to me, it's, it's what defies convention. Well, I mean, you know, you could go all the way back to, to, to Carl Perkins. I mean, Carl Perkins was the, was pretty much the innovator, but the only reason, the only reason Carl Perkins got a shot, right, was because Chuck Berry actually did it first. Mm. And, you know, but because of the color, the, you know, because of, you know, prejudice and all the other stuff, it would it would be another four or five years before actually Chuck Berry would get his due. And I mean, all that stuff was overshadowed by Elvis. I mean, you know, Elvis caused a, he freaked everybody out when he wanted to do a gospel record. I mean, that's well noted. If you ever really want to read how powerful Elvis was, go back and read the story about how he petitioned his label. He didn't really petition them. He told them, I'm going to do a gospel record because he felt that gospel being a black music form was not appreciated and he had been kind of weaned on it but he couldn't really say that because of the color barrier because of prejudice right mm. so he threatened to quit rca unless you know and that's one of the reasons that they call him the king because he could do whatever he wanted and it turned out to be that gospel record is still one of his top three selling records that he ever made fair and I, and I think for for today for whatever reason number one his impact and just his talent is is now underrated because mm-hmm. you know people forget what he did and how revolutionary was at the time and how mm-hmm. controversial it was at the time now everybody's doing it so it's not controversial anymore right well here's right. gonna here's what's gonna chap here's what's gonna cook your noodle I mean everything in music is pretty cyclical because there's still only 12 half steps in an octave. And it's been that way since the 1500s. So from the 1500s until now, there's not too many new things that you're ever going to find when it comes to music. You will find things that are recycled. And just now when you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, the the words that you're using were the words that they were using to define hip-hop when it was new. Sure. Gangster rap when it was new. Blonde, you know the, the 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 second British invasion with the Sex Pistols and the you know, when it was new, you know the yeah. these whole the concept of rock and roll is as you stated earlier, it's about expression, it's about rebellion, and the the difference between today's rock and roll and yesterday's rock and roll that you and I grew up on is back then we realized that poets, poets, singer songwriters had the power to inspire thought. And they used it, they used it to empower a generation. And that's why my friend and I talked about Bob Dylan ad nauseum winning a Pulitzer Prize. Mm-hmm. I'm not a Dylan fan, but I recognize his impact, right? Mm-hmm. And and in mm-hmm. in the 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 lyrics, the 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 poetry in his lyrics, uh, there's mm-hmm. no reason why he shouldn't win that. Right. Yeah. Anytime somebody gives, every time somebody says music is nothing, it doesn't have any social bearing. Blah 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 blah. I say, oh really? You know the most powerful, the most powerful song I remember when I was a kid. I'd like to teach the world. And that just came back around on on the morning news shows too. Um, Yeah, I absolutely. And but I mean, that was part of a generation. Yep. Yeah. Right, Michael. It's. Again, it's like you said, it's about expression, right? And it's mm-hmm. it's about it's but about see the feeling. Today's rock and roll. To answer your question for your for your buddy, today 
today's rock and roll is as much like yesterday's rock and roll, like today's Corvette is like a 62 Corvette. Yeah. And, and, and I like the, the cyclical analogy. Um, I want before I know you have a hard stop, so I, I wanted to talk about this re- before we uh, have to close the show tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I've noticed about you since we've known each other is uh, you are very outspoken on social media about uh, social issues, racism, mm-hmm. politics, and that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you about that because I don't think it, it can't be a recent thing, right? This has to be. Um, you can't possibly have been quiet all your life, right? Just, just from what I know about you, but it does seem like the last few years and, and me too, right? I mean, as I, as I talked off air, I, I didn't want to really get into politics because it's just going to stress me and piss me off. Um, I, I am a reformed Republican. I was a Republican for almost 30 years and, and before the Republican, uh, nomination of Trump, I left the party. And eventually mm-hmm. change parties, um, but it, it just really seems like um, you're very vocal and very outspoken about uh, issues, and and I respect that because you know even even times I think you've you've misunderstood a few of my comments. I'm on your side. Uh, <laughs> 99.9% of the time with this stuff. And when I comment right. on your stuff, it's just sometimes my, my words don't come across right. Um, but I, I do find it really, really interesting. And, you know, here we are in the middle of, uh, you know, we're in, in Black History Month and, you know, a lot of stuff is in the news and, and that kind of thing. And somebody once asked me how I felt about the wall, like that Trump wanted to build. I said, leave me on the other side with the Mexicans. I'll go to Farolito and, and eat tacos and be happy and 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 drink, you know, uh, the mm-hmm. best the best Mexican beer I can find and mm-hmm. li- just leave me there, um, mm-hmm. you know. And and basically the the question was, you know, where do you stand? I said I'm with people of color. Mm-hmm. I, I, so, uh, where do you? Where does this come from? Why are you? Because because your takes are very astute. Right, it's not like you're just shouting into the void and saying dumb shit. Your your takes are, are very intelligent um, and and backed by fact and uh, you know real real data and information and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Where does this all come from? Uh, my father. I mean, it used to be you know the nuclear family. I got a newsflash for people who don't remember or don't realize the, how important the nuclear family is. The nuclear family was kind of built around the community of the family with the patriarch, the matriarch, and the kids, right? But dinner was at 6 o'clock, always. That centerpiece in my household was augmented with the news. Huntley Brinkley, David Brinkley, the news, right? So when I started becoming a, you know, when I got to be a teenager, I was already immersed after having gone through, you know, Nixon and and all sorts of things. I was immersed in the news. And what really mystified me is when I went to college and found out that there were so many kids who didn't watch the news. For me, that all changed because I woke up one Sunday morning and the sky was getting dark and nobody knew why. That was the morning that Mount St. Helens blew. Mm. I have not I have not missed a day of news since then. 
because I never wanted to be in the position where I didn't know what was going on. And be literally in the dark. Completely. It was kind of freaky, but that, uh, that again, is another story. That's the one thing about my life. It's like I've had so many experiences. It's like what I should do is write a chapter book about stories. But anyway, um, what that has led to over the past 10 years has been, you know, the dialogue that used to happen has been going away, and it's been going away because there is a party who wants to expand rights, give uh, opportunities, and uh, pretty much what they call expand the franchise, right? And there is another, their opposition doesn't. They want to control everything, but they say they that they, they're, they're totally contradictory, right? And so where this all started for me is, you know, in the rise of Obama, and then, you know, it, it was like slung into a new dimension. When I'm watching Obama being sworn in as i'm on the phone with my father and listen i said dad did you ever think that this day would ever come long silence and he said no son i never did and i'm talking to a man who was born in 1929 who grew up in the impoverished south he lived with all he lived all the stuff that i never did and so in the, you know, the whole Black History Month thing means something different to me. Why? Because I lived a lot of it. Right. And I had, I was connected to people who experienced things. I've experienced things. I mean, you know, I was at, I was at Central Washington University for four weeks, five weeks. And it, my mom calls me up and says, we have to take you out of there. Why? Well, it was just on the news here in Seattle that the KKK had been, putting up flyers and was trying to start, they wanted to pull me out of school because it scared the crap out of my parents. This is in 1979, mm. right? So when people ask, you know, when in this particular part of the river, because time is nothing but a river, what we've run into is that it's been very difficult for anyone to have pet, what I call pet. Patience, acceptance, tolerance. That's what's missing in the world. Patience with other people as well as ourselves. Acceptance of other people as well as ourselves. And tolerance of other people as well as ourselves. Because when you do that, you can meet somebody wherever they are. And no matter what they say, unless they make it personal, they're entitled. They have the same freedoms that you do. That's the way this country is supposed to work. And if you get upset about somebody who has more rights than you or less rights than you, well, that's the problem. If somebody has more rights than you, the, the, the American way, quote unquote, Amer is to level it out. You don't believe that. Read the story about the, of the Tennessee Valley Authority and how hydroelectric power came, came to that part of the, you know, that part of the country. So now we're in an area we're in an, in an area where one party wants to take away the rights of others in order to make other people conform to their way of thinking as opposed to another party who wants people to have the freedom they want to give them more freedom to to choose for themselves and the irony is it used to be 
these parties used to be swapped. They used to be backwards. Yep. Which is nine times out of ten, that's where the fight always goes. Well, you know, the Democrats started the KKK. And I go, you obviously still have not studied the Southern strategy. Now, have you? You have not done the reading. Goodbye. <laughs> I say goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. As you've seen, you've yeah. seen it. You know, it's like, yep. you know, I start asking people questions and when they can't answer, I nail them and I pull their card. Yeah. That's, that's the way I was raised. It's like, be honest. Period. Yep. And, and the thing of it is, you know, when you, when you look at it too, I know, I mean, the part of the problem is, you know, they don't care unless it affects them. Right. But when mm -hmm. you start looking at it, I knew too many people who could have been adversely affected by deportation policies. Right. 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 I, knew, I knew too many people of color, too many people of, of different ethnic backgrounds to look. I mean, you know, you're, I, I always tell people, know your history. Yes, 100%. People of, color, people of color used to be gay people. Gay people used to be black people. Black people used, or wait, before there, no, right after black people, there were Vietnamese people. Then before them was black people. And before them were, you know, go back in the history. Yeah. I mean, America is like the airport. Everybody there is from somewhere else. Thank you. Thank you very much. Because that's my problem with like dumb stuff like Columbus Day. You can't discover something where there's people already there. And Columbus well, never I mean, came to know, North America anyway. But, you know, believe me, I mean, I, you know, I we, could go on ad nauseum oh, about yeah. any one topic because sure. the whole thing of it is, is the lack of acceptance for a, 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 a different view. No, I like what you said about Pat. Right, PAT. Yeah. That was perfect. PAT. It's the yeah. key. It's the key to everything. That's what I, you know, that's what I learned. Because when I can accept myself, it's easier for me to accept somebody else. Michael, it's only when I have. It's only when I fear that oh, I don't have as good a car. I don't have as great of hair. Oh, I don't have a fine girl. It's only then that I start getting intolerant of other people. Yeah, and the thing of it is, we're all human beings. We all bleed the same when we're cut, and you know. What bothers yeah, me, a lot of what bothers me is the lack of recognition of things like systemic racism and, and lack of opportunity for folks. And, you know, when you look at some of the stuff that's in the news about the NFL and, and mm -hmm. you know, lack of diversity and that kind of thing, it's uh, part of the problem there is you know, people don't even think to interview people of color uh, rather than, you know, that there aren't people of color that are qualified. It, yeah. It's all about it's all about opportunity. Right, and and if you're systemically restricted from opportunity, there mm -hmm. there's a problem there. And then yeah, you, well, you know, you know, ask. Here's the question that you ask someone who doesn't believe it's there. You ask them, "Did you grow up in a house where your parents owned the house?" And they'll say, "Yeah." And then you ask them, "Well, did their parents own the house before? Did your parent? Did their? Did your grandparents own their house?" And when they say, "Yeah." Then you ask them, well, how did your parents get their house? Because my grandparents, my, my great-grandparents didn't own their house. But my grandparents and my parents did. But it wasn't until I was 50-plus years old, or it wasn't, yeah, 56 years old, before I actually owned my house. Right? Yeah. And see, this is, when they say systemic, People don't really understand what systemic means. There's some really good YouTubes on this that I that I have I've posted before, but I post a lot. So <laughs> <laughs> that, that you do. I, not afraid, I have a hard time keeping up with you people, sometimes. I, I am that one person that you will meet that if you ask me a question, 
you're going to get an answer. But, Period. you know, that's one of the things I like about you, Michael, is, is you know, there, there's so much to learn from the stuff that you post and the conversation and the discourse and that kind of thing and, and the breadth of experience that you've had in life. So Everybody. it's one of the... One of the yeah, reasons I like I like being your Facebook friend. I like to think I'm your actual friend, and uh, I, we'll, we'll get always. To I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave you with this. But it was a lesson that I learned flying into Berlin Airport, and I noticed it with all the other airports that I've ever been to. Every airport is located near a major highway. Mm-hmm. So when you look down out of the window when you're coming in for a landing, there are people in those cars, and those people have a life. They're doing something and they don't see you looking at them, but they see the plane and they think there's people on that plane who have a life. They're doing something. And when you start backing away and looking at the, looking at the ground from 50, 60,000 feet, right? You don't really see people. You just see places, but in those places there are people. Now, if you back out a little farther, that's a continent. You back out to the space station, that's a planet. There's only one species of human on this planet. So at some point, we were we're, we have more in common than we do different. And that's the realization that not a lot of people keep can come to. We're more the same then we are different. The thing that we disagree, the thing is, is that we have to stop trying to be right. I don't disagree with any of that. I think you're 100% right. And, and Michael, I'm, I'm proud to know you. I know you got a hard stop and I know you got somewhere to be. And, uh, you know, like I said, at the top of the show, I've, I've interviewed four-star admirals, four-star generals, Pro, Pro Football Hall of Famers. I know all kinds of people from all walks of life. You're the first Grammy Award winner I've ever interviewed. Uh, and I don't consider it an interview. I consider it a conversation. And uh, as, as you know, I count you among my friends. And I don't mm -hmm. collect a whole lot of them. So... <laughs> Right. Uh, the, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, you, you, you're on a fantastic song and fantastic track and you can, you can hang your hat on that, but I know you're, you're a Renaissance man. Uh, and you know, at some point now that I live here in Washington, we got to get together and, and, uh, yep. have a cup of coffee and, and talk about all this. We could talk another hour about race relations and critical race well, theory and all this other stuff. Know, you can always, you can always have me back. I plan, on, I plan on it. I plan on it. As long as we're both drawing breath, we can do this again. You have until then, you know, I'm yep. on social media at T-E-E-W-A-N-Z, at T-Wans. And if people listening want to find me, that's how you find me. I was going to get to that, but you beat me to <laughs> it. Um, but you also have a website. You're on Facebook. Um, yep. You know, and, uh, you know, Michael Wansley. T Wands is a heck of a lot more than than just the guy you know from Thrift Shop with Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. But he's a Grammy Award winner. He's a Renaissance man. He's a musician. He's a singer. He's he's avant garde. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Hey, it's been my pleasure. I'm just a guy trying to be more the candy bar. 
the rapper. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to steal that. That's going to do it for this edition of the Get the Deck podcast for my very special guest, Grammy Award winner, Michael Wansley. I have been Jerry Knack. We will talk to you next week.